The reading this morning can be found on page 1087, and I'm also reading from John chapter 20, but starting a few verses on from where Scott read, starting at verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated at where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Good morning, everyone. Great to see everyone here. Easter Sunday is my favourite day of the year. Uh, Let me just start with a uh, brief little story. Um, It's about a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest and an Anglican minister. 
and they're kind of an unusual group of people to be together, but they're having a cup of coffee. They thought they'd catch up and, you know, chat about life and their respective views on it. And uh, the topic turned to the discussion of when does life begin? And the Catholic priest, you know, popped up straight away and said, look, in our tradition, life begins at conception. It's a very divine moment. And so we want to recognise that, we teach that, the Anglican minister looked at him and said, yes, look, I understand and with all respect, but we have a, a different take on it. Um, we think life begins um, when the child is in the womb and there's a sense of personhood has begun. Um, and you might say, at, you know, 10 weeks, whatever it is, when there's a fingerprint and that gives a sense of identity and there's a real sense a new person has been born. And the rabbi looked at both of them and he just kind of leans back and just laughs. And he goes, you guys have got it all wrong. He said, honestly, life begins when the dog dies and the kids move out of home. (laughs) With all respect to the kids who are here this morning. (laughs) I want to speak to you this Easter Sunday about finding life. Easter Sunday and the resurrection is all about new life. And so my prayer has been that we will have our eyes and hearts opened to this wonderful message. So pray with me as I commence the message. Father, we thank you we can be here on Easter Sunday. Speak to us this day about the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus. Convict us of its truth and transform us by its meaning. In Jesus' name, amen. When does life begin? I want to say to us this morning, it begins when we discover the significance of Jesus' resurrection for our own life. That's when real life, eternal life, spiritual life begins. And I've got three points. What? So what? And so. But firstly, what? What actually is the resurrection? And I think it's worth asking this question on this day. What are we actually talking about when we're talking about resurrection. And I want to start by saying what resurrection is not. Resurrection that we're talking about today is not resuscitation or a lucky escape from death. One of the shows that I used to watch when I was at my, uh, lived in Wollongong was, it was on TV, it was called They Shouldn't Be Alive. And each week you would see some traumatic tale of human endurance and kind of, you know, incredible spirit against the odds. Um, As someone who likes going out in boats, I was taken by the story of the yacht that went down, that they ended up in the rubber dinghy and two of them survived, two of them were eaten in the sharks and they shouldn't have been alive. They drifted around the oceans for days and days. Well, one lady who could have been on the show is this lady, uh, Vesna Vulovic. She holds a Guinness Book of Records record. Now, I wouldn't encourage you to try and beat her with this record. Um, She has the record for surviving the highest fall without a parachute, not one that you would ordinarily try and beat. She fell and survived 10,160 metres. It was in 1972. She was a flight attendant. It was over Czechoslovakia and Croatian terrorists had placed a bomb on board her plane. The plane literally blew up into pieces. She was at the tail section She was seated and strapped in 
and literally the tail section went into the snow, the whole thing kind of disintegrated, but in a just act of, you would have to say, uh, fate, she survived. She was the only one. She made a full recovery. She did have a fractured skull, two broken legs, three broken vertebrae. One was crushed. It left her temporarily paralysed from the waist down, but she regained full use of her body many months afterwards. And one of the great understatements of history, the man who found her said, and I quote, I think she was very lucky. (laughs) And I think it's worth asking the question on this day, Are we talking about Jesus just being very lucky? It's a good question to ask. We celebrated just a couple of days ago the fact that he was killed. Was it in fact that he was crucified but brought down from the cross and resuscitated in the grave a couple of days later, moved the stone away and kind of went off and licked his wounds? Well, the simple answer is no. If you read in the Gospels, and particularly John's Gospels, the one that we're looking at today, page 1087, chapter 20, but if you go back to chapter 19, what you'll see there is the fact that the Roman soldiers who, if I can say, were professional experts in killing people, they were completely satisfied he was dead. Crucified countless people. They knew how to do it. And one of the things that would happen at the end of the day, if the person hadn't died and they wanted to get them off the cross, they could leave them up there, was that they would break their legs. And they would break their legs so that the person could not push themselves up and breathe and live on. And the broken legs effectively meant a very quick death as they literally drowned. Now, when they came to Jesus' body on the cross they noted that he was already dead. Now, they knew what a dead person was. But just to be sure, they shoved a spear into his side and the fluids that came out had separated, which was a medical indication of death. He was dead. There was great certainty about it. They knew how to kill people. And the Romans knew that this Jesus was dead. Now, he wasn't lucky, he was dead. And they buried him in a tomb. And they rolled him in spices, it was part of, if I could say, the Jewish religious tradition. And then a number of men rolled a large rock over the tomb to seal it. And then what took place a couple of mornings later was not a resuscitation, but a resurrection. We pick up the story from where Scott read at the beginning of the service, John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2 page 1087, early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, which is John, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. You see, Mary discovers two things which are totally unexpected. Now, she's not expecting to see Jesus risen from the dead. She first of all sees that the stone has been rolled away. It's a massive stone. Uh, We know from the other Gospels that the Romans had posted guards there to stop any potential rumours or stories circulating because they feared the disciples may come and steal the body and circulate a story that he was alive because they'd heard some of the predictions. No, the stone is rolled away. 
first thing that would have surprised her. Second, she goes in and she notices that the body's been taken. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now, what I suspect she would have strongly thought is this, that grave robbers have come and stolen the body. Now, the reason for that is, and we're not familiar with this, but in that tradition, when they wrap the body in spices, John's Gospel, you see uh, in chapter 15, I think it's verse 39, records 34 kilos of spices. Now, we had an Easter egg hunt at uh, my house on Friday with the kids, and we had four and a half kilos of chocolates. My son weighed them. But we're talking nearly 10 times that. 34 kilos of spices. Now, in that day and age, that's currency, that's valuable. And that's why people rob graves. This is a prime target. And Mary thinks this is what's happened. But the body wasn't stolen. No, what happened that morning is what we call a resurrection. Jesus died and then he came back to life. Well, let me put it another way. He met death face on on the cross. He experienced death. He was dead and buried for a few days. And then he defeated death. It's why there were days between his death and resurrection and not ours. I take it because it was to demonstrate conclusively to all in his day and in our day and in every day that he really was dead, he really was buried, but he really came back to life. You see, resuscitation is an escape from death, but resurrection is the life that's actually beyond death. Resurrection is the defeat of death, and that's what happened that morning. That's what the Gospels proclaim. Jesus was resurrected, And the resurrection was a bodily one. And we pick up the reading from where Susan uh, took us this morning. And we have a look at some of the facts there. And what's striking is Mary, when she's confronted with the resurrected Jesus in the garden, she first of all thinks he's a gardener. So there is some difference in terms of the appearance. But she recognizes, if I can say, a man who has a body who reflects normal, if I can say, physical human existence. And then it's Jesus who's there in the garden. And he speaks to her, Mary. And with one word, that familiar voice breaks through the sorrow and the doubt, the pain and the loss. As she hears her master's voice call her name, Mary. And Mary does this, I take it, she runs to him and grabs him. Listen to what Mary, Jesus says. You see, Mary turns towards him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me. You see, let me illustrate. I'll illustrate with Scott. Just jump up, Scott. Now, Scott knows, I've always wanted to give him a hug. And he's resisted it. But imagine Scott had been dead for two, three days. And then he walks in the building. What would I do? I'd go up, Scott. (laughs) Now, why would I do that? Not just because I want to have a hug, Scott. Thank you. Because I want to actually see he's real. And let me say, if you have seen someone who you thought has died, 
and they've come back to life. What are you going to do? You're going to go and grab them, aren't you? That was a little Easter surprise for you, Scott. He's overwhelmed with joy. (laughs) Because note what Jesus says. He says, Mary, got the verse here, do not hold me. And you could literally translate that as do not cling to me. Now, when you read through the resurrection accounts, what is striking is Jesus wants to help them see that he has been resurrected bodily. In one of my favourite stories as a fisherman, at the end of John's Gospel, read the next chapter, he literally has fish and chips for breakfast with them after the disciples have been fishing. They sit around the shore, the fish come in off the boat, and he says, let's have breakfast, and they get the fish out and they cook it and they eat it. Because you see, what he's wanting to demonstrate to them, he is not a ghost, it's not an apparition, this is him, he has been bodily, physically, resurrected from death. The resurrection is an event where death itself has been confronted and it's been defeated. And it shows to us conclusively that there is life beyond the grave. I'm going to come back to that. But I want to just stop and ask the question, as we think about what the resurrection is, why do you believe in it? Why should you believe it? And I want to give you eight reasons why I believe in the resurrection. And that Jesus rose bodily from the grave that first Easter Sunday morning. First is this, it is such an extraordinary claim and event. It's not one that you would just make up. And it was written about widely in the first 30 years and spoken about extensively. And what followed was a belief Because you see, many, many people saw Jesus risen from the grave and this extraordinary story spread. I'll come back to this. And it was so extraordinary, no one could kill the story off as much as the Romans and the Jewish leaders wanted to and attempted to. Secondly, serious historians all agree on two key historical facts. Now, I say serious historians, in other words, real historians who've got PhDs who work in credible universities... Uh, not the ones who often appear in the Sydney Morning Herald. I love the paper, but just not on Easter Sunday sometimes. Um, and they'll have some crocked up story about a body being discovered somewhere in Palestine. And you know the stories. Every year about this time, someone will pull out some story from some person. The serious academics who study history seriously all agree on these two things. One is the fact, one, that the tomb was empty. All serious historians will say, yes, the tomb was empty. It's a fact of history. The second is, they'll say, the disciples believe they saw Jesus risen from the grave. It's an undisputable fact for historians that the disciples believed that they saw Jesus risen from the grave. Now, you've got to ask the question, what do you do with those two facts? People like myself say it's because they actually did see him risen from the grave. People who are agnostic or not Christian for whatever reason will often just say, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. They'll just kind of push its meaning to the background. But they agree on this, the tomb was empty and the disciples believe they saw Jesus risen from the grave. There's no other credible way to explain the facts of what happened that morning. Thirdly, 
The women were reported as the first witnesses. It's often commented on this. It's worth saying it again. If you wanted to invent this story, women in that day and age, I don't believe it's true, but in that day and age were deemed unreliable witnesses. So if you wanted to concoct a story to convince people, the last thing you would do was have as the key eyewitnesses, women. And yet who were the first to the grave and the ones who first witnessed the resurrection and saw the Lord Jesus? Well, it's Mary and the others. Fourthly, the writers themselves claim to be eyewitnesses. If you've got John's Gospel open, have a look at verse 3 of chapter 20. Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I love this because I used to do athletics and uh, I wasn't too bad. I won't go on about things I won, but anyway, won a few things. (laughs) And this page kind of jumps off the page at me because they were running. And you know what struck me is, do you know what John is saying? I won the race. You always remember the races you run. And I was thinking about yesterday, what race? You don't need to know. Anyway, I can still remember them. And John says, I won the race. Both were running. But the other disciple, he's trying to be kind of modest. That's him, John. Well, actually, I outran Peter. I beat him. I reached the tomb first. But Simon's very determined. This is Peter. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Simon, though, came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Peter might think, well, I came second, but I'm first in. (laughs) Now, why do I make comment on that? It's a very unusual, particular description. It's the sort of thing you don't make up unless it actually happened. You see, they're recounting their actual experiences of seeing the resurrection. Now, it goes on and on in terms of other things they witnessed and saw. But the writers themselves claim to be eyewitnesses. Fifthly, the Gospels read as eyewitness accounts, not made-up stories. And if I can just differentiate this from the first one, you see, when you read literature, one of the things you're asking the question is, what sort of genre is it? Now, as soon as something starts once upon a time, what am I talking about? And you've got names like Hansel and Gretel. They're fairy tales. But the interesting thing with the Gospels is they do not feel at all like stories. They feel like eyewitness accounts of real events in real history. Now, one particular thing to note is this. Um, If you're going to write an account which is going to help you lead a movement of people and you're going to be the head of that movement, um, in that day and age, one of the last things that you would do is paint yourself in a bad light because you'd want people to respect you and follow you as you lead the movement. Now, one of the things you note through the Gospels is the disciples are complete klutzes. And all their mistakes are there for all of world history ever after to know about. Jesus, in fact, calls them thick. John, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 7. Are you guys so dull? No, is that, why are you so thick? Now, now, there's lots of different incidences where you can look at the disciples in a bad light, but you see, they read as eyewitness accounts, not made-up stories. Uh, number six, all but one of the disciples died for their belief that Jesus rose. John's the only one who doesn't, but he's stuck in a cave, basically as a political, politically exiled prisoner on the island of Patmos. You can go to the island of Patmos today, it's in the Greek islands, and you can see where they believe he was kept. Every other one of the disciples was crucified, beheaded, speared. I mean, they had lots of inventive ways to do it, but they all died. And they all died for one message, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of them. And the interesting thing is, um, you see, 
People will not die for an invented story. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a famous politician who was, um, he was actually a public servant, from America, Charles Colson. He worked for Richard Nixon. And his nickname was the Toe Cutter, very tough man, ex-Marine. And he was there with all of the shenanigans that went on in White House when President Nixon was impeached. And when, if I can say, the news went down and they were on the way out, they got together in a closed room, those who were part of, if I can say, the conspiracy and the, the terrible things that happened, and they concocted a story to try and save their bacon. You can read it in Charles Coulson's book, Born Again. And Colson says, you know what, we couldn't keep the story alive for longer than about 48 hours and our lives depended on it in terms of not going to prison. But within two days, someone cracked. He said, I read this story in prison and was struck by how real it must be. You see, it is completely against our human nature to construct a story like this and then go and die for it, if it isn't true. Seven, the triumph of the early church. The church went from this group of fearful men hidden in the equivalent of a downtown motel room to a group of transformed men and women who took on the might of the Roman Empire and they turned the ancient world upside down and within 300 years, Christianity was the dominant belief across the empire and all historians will agree the belief that drove this movement was that Jesus rose from the dead and lastly from a personal note I know he's risen he's changed my life and he has changed the lives of millions of people he is alive we know him so so what that's the resurrection. I'm saying to you it's real, but so what? What's the significance of this event? Is Easter Sunday really that important? Is it so significant that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I want to give you two reasons. But first, listen to the Apostle Paul. He thought it was very significant. And he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15 in reflecting on the resurrection. He said, look, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, actually they're lost. There's no hope for them. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. See what he's saying? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, actually feel sorry for us because we've got no hope. You see, the first implication of the resurrection is this, death is not the end. Many people today wonder what will happen after I die some postulate there's nothing out there and you'll hear that being spoken we're going to address that next week with atheism and when you die at the end of the day the worms win there is no life beyond that moment when the heart stops beating there's just death and the grave other people wonder surely there must be something beyond the grave they want to know there's a cemetery that has a tombstone with these words on it. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Quite chilling words, aren't they? 
Well, some wit scratched a few more lines at the bottom. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Death has a power over us. And I want to say it's the one power you cannot defeat. Someone once said a coffin is the size that it fits the bum along with the president. One size fits all. And whether we welcome it or not, whether we ask for it or not, at some point, old man wrinkle will catch up with all of us. And you know, our Western culture wants to avoid it, it wants to put it off. I read this week that in terms of the industry of anti-aging products, now that's things from anti-wrinkle cream to colouring for hair, all those kind of things where we try and stay younger. And let me say, if you want to colour your hair, go for it. But the world market this year will be over $300 billion. Now, predominantly spent in the Western world, $300 billion to prevent ageing. Or it's probably better said, the appearance of ageing. You see, we don't want to die and we don't want to get old. But here's the wonderful news. The resurrection says loudly... There is life beyond the grave. You see, you ask the question, is there a life beyond the grave? Well, yes, because he's actually come back and shown himself. There is life beyond the grave. It's God. It's Christ. You see, he rose from the grave and came back to show us that. He is the one who has power over life and death. And beyond the grave, what you will meet is the living God and you will meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one you will meet. And the second implication of the resurrection is this, Jesus is Lord. pastor from New York City is called Tim Keller, very astute thinker, I love to read him. And on this issue of the significance of the resurrection, he wrote these words. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You see, when you listen to the Lord Jesus, he makes the most outrageous and powerful and confronting of claims that every person really must consider. Now, just in John's Gospel, where we're kind of travelling today, these are some of the things he says, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 24, he has the audacity to say that he is the one who will judge all people. Now, just think about that. What he's saying is he's going to be our judge, your judge, my judge. He's been given that authority by the Father. It's an audacious claim. Uh, He says in John chapter 6, if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. What an incredible promise. He who believes has eternal life. You might think he's slightly deluded. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, often we tend to lock people up like that. But that's the claim. He is the light of the world. He will bring light and life to all who come to him. 
John chapter 14, one of the most exclusive claims, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, incredibly audacious. And then he says one of the most profound things. He says, honestly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's the claim of divinity. Now, if he didn't rise from the dead, those claims are, if I can just say something you read, screw up, put in the bin. What Keller is saying, though, is if he rose from the dead, you've got to take those claims seriously. That he is the one who has the power over us. He's the one who controls our destiny. And I want to say to you, this is the wonderful news. He's the one that can give you life and light and can take you through death to eternal life. It's why today is such a happy day. He has risen from the grave. And when you see Thomas, it's such an encouragement for me to see his interaction in this passage in John chapter 20. Um, Because what you discover is him realising this reality that he is the Lord. Have a look at the uh, passage. It's John 20. We're reading from verse 24 now. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve. And he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Don't you hate it when there's a significant event that takes place? Everyone's talking about it, but you missed out. Well, that's what happened with Thomas. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, Thomas is what you might call a cynic naturally. He's one of these guys who won't believe it just because someone's told it to him. He wants to experience it himself before he says, yes, I agree. And he says to them, look, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe you guys. Now, Thomas is there for all the people who've got doubts. I think it's such a a wonderful thing, Thomas is there. And the way Jesus treats him is incredibly graceful. We read on that a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time, you might say. Though the the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Actually, put your finger here, see my hands. Uh, Reach out your hand, put in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And you see Thomas's response. You can just see him falling to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And if you want to ask the question, who is God? The resurrection answers that. It is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I love what Jesus said, because you've seen me, Thomas, you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which is why the Gospel of John in chapter 20 finishes this way. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, there's too many wonderful things to tell you, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Which leads me to this question, so... We've looked at what, we've looked at so what, but so. So what about us? Easter calls for response. You might even say it demands a decision. Will we believe this? Will we respond to him? 
will we receive him as our Lord and our God? And you've got this model of what is required with Thomas, who literally bows down and confesses, you are my Lord and my God. You see, if Jesus is still dead, then his death actually accomplishes nothing. If he's still dead, then the claims to be God are false. He's a liar. If he's still dead, the Christian faith is based on a deception. If he's still dead, honestly, we're to be pitied above all peoples for trying to convince people to follow him. If he's still dead, go home. Don't come back next week. Honestly, get your surfboard out, get your fishing boats out, get your skis out, whatever you want. Just go out and get into it. If he's dead, eat, drink and be merry. Have as much chocolate as you can shove down your throat. Enjoy it. You'll probably feel sick later. But anyway, go out and live it up because there ain't nothing else. Go home. I have nothing to offer you. Seriously, if he's dead, this this Christian faith is a crock. There is no answer to evil in the world. You can try to pretend to be happy, but I don't think there's any real meaning or purpose that you'll discover. But, but, if he's alive and he's resurrected, everything, and I mean everything changes. My life was stopped in the tracks I I walked away from the Christian faith. I thought I'd find life outside of this God stuff. It was confronted as I read the Gospel of Mark. I was confronted with the resurrection. And I worked out this very simple truth. Jesus was alive and if I'd met him that day and I died, I'd be in hell. But I knew he loved me. And I knew he wanted me to come back to him. And he was calling me to come. And I'm here today to proclaim to you, he is risen. And he's calling you to come to him this day and find life eternal in his name. To know the reality of your sin forgiven, your shame taken away, being filled with his spirit, the spirit of new life, and being born again so that you live and you'll have eternal life in his name so that when you die... It'll be a doorway into an eternal life, not a journey to judgment. Our sins cut us off from God, but Jesus, by his death and resurrection, will bring us back to God. He wants to change your life today. He wants to forgive our sins today. And he wants to give us the assurance of eternal life. And this day I call you to come. Come to the risen Saviour. And like Thomas did so many years ago, confess him as your Lord and your God and receive him into your life. Friends, let's bow our heads and pray. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, who in their heart of hearts would say, I need to come to you, Jesus? Who would say, I need to come back to you, Jesus? Who would say, I want to find out about you? Well, if that's you today, I want to invite you to pray with me. It's a very simple prayer. It's like the one I prayed so many years ago when I was 20. It says, this Easter Sunday, I come to you, Jesus. I believe you rose from the dead. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my God. Take over. Forgive me my sins. 
Give me eternal life in your name. Amen. If you'd like to pray that with me, I'm just going to pray that quietly and just invite you to pray along with me and give your life to Jesus. Receive him as your Lord and Saviour. Dear Jesus, this Easter Sunday, I come to you. I believe you rose from the dead. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my God. Take over. Forgive me my sins. Please give me eternal life. In your name. Amen.